All right. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. Um, we are continuing our sermon series called The Promise uh, as we continue to prepare our hearts to enter into uh, the season of Advent. So let's grab our Bibles. We're flipping over to Genesis chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 10. Page 10. While you're flipping over there, let me again wish you a very Merry Christmas. Uh, thank you for taking a little bit of time out of the season to join us this morning. Uh, it is the Advent season. Uh, now, Advent, the word Advent um, means arrival. Literally, that's what the word means. And, and so during the Advent season, we look back to the first arrival of, of Christ. Um, obviously, very much uh, the focus of Christmas, right? The little baby in the manger and all that. But we also look forward to the next arrival of Christ, the second coming. Uh, before we read our text, uh, so keep your, keep your Bibles open. Before we read it, uh, I want to remind you where we are in the series because it, I think it'll help put in context what we read when we read it. Okay, so two weeks ago, we started in Genesis chapter 3, uh, looking at the, the, the account of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And, um, and in that account, we looked at what we call the Great Rebellion, where Adam and Eve basically said, uh, you know, we don't want to revolve around God's glory, we want to revolve around our own. We, we don't want to live under God's authority, we want to live under our own. We, we don't want to um, live uh, centered on, on God's purpose, we want to live for our own. We will provide for ourselves, we will make a name for ourselves, we, we will ultimately look at God's creation to do for us what, what we used to look to God to do. God, our, God's creation is, is what's going to give me security or make me important or give me glory or, or we're going to look to these things. And, 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 and in that, they, they broke shalom with God. It was, a, it was not only a great rebellion, it was a great betrayal because God had created them in his own image and, and they had betrayed that trust. They had betrayed that relationship uh, because they wanted to be equal to God instead of dependent on God. And, and when they broke shalom with God, it broke shalom with, with every other area of, uh, of key human relationship, right? We looked at that in Genesis chapter 3. It's a, it's a profound chapter. Uh, we could see that, that, that they broke shalom with themselves. That when they broke shalom with God, it was the birth of, of, of um, the, lo- the, the lack of peace, the lack of flourishing, the lack of balance we have within ourselves, right? It was the birth of that inner critic, that voice at the back of the head that, that's just telling us we're not good enough and never will be, that tears us down continually, that either puffs us up in pride or crushes us in shame. Uh, we lost shalom with one another. No longer do we live in community. We now live in competition. No longer do we live for the good of one another. We live fighting for our own good, right? We, we keep what we have and we fight for more and, and, and people are a threat to us instead of a blessing to us. And, and, we, and we think about what we have instead of what we can give. And, and we lost shalom with, with the rest of created order, right? With, with creation itself. And, and so everything from uh, earthquakes and, and wildfires to uh, cancer and, and uh, all of these things were, you know, we lost shalom, right? So remember, shalom is this powerful theological word that, that it means peace literally but it, but it means so much more than just a lack of conflict right it means the presence and the flourishing of life it's life as life was meant to be it is it is everything balanced it is everything flourishing it is the fullness of the goodness of life we broke shalom with God and in the midst of the chaos of Genesis chapter 3 before the dust had even settled in the midst of, of their rebellion um, God spoke a promise right into the middle of, of, the, of the chaos um, basically saying that he would send a hero. He would send a son of the woman who would undo what had been done. 
He, he would crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent would bruise his heel. And I'm sure that Eve wondered, um, as she gave birth to her firstborn son, Cain, if he might be this promised hero. Maybe this is the, the son that, that God promised. And then imagine her heartbreak as, as she saw him grow and it was very clear he wasn't going to be the hero. In fact, he ends up murdering his little brother, Abel. Commits the first murder. All right? And then we looked at the, the, the heritage of Cain, that there were generations of Cain where like father, like son, he passed down the wickedness and violence of his heart uh, to his children and his children's children and, and down the line. But there was a third-born son named Seth, and, and Seth became... Uh, the line of promise, right? God gave a promise that there would be a seed of the woman and that line was going to come through, through Seth. And, and the problem was, um, as the world progressed and population spread, the wickedness and the violence of mankind spread to a point where God looked at the earth and there was only one man left on earth that responded to him in faith, a man named Noah. And so God, in judgment, wiped out um, the population of the earth. And it was, a, it was an act of judgment, but it was also an act of grace. We talked about this last week because in that process, he, he shortened the lifespan of man so that, so that it could limit the amount of, of creative wickedness any one man could do over the course of a single lifetime. They, they simply um, couldn't live long enough to devise the level of wickedness, the abuse of power, the monopolization of resources that they could pre-flood so that, so that wicked men would be limited in the wickedness they could perform over the course of a lifetime. But God preserved Noah and his family through the flood. And, 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 and Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and, and Japheth. And, um, uh, and we find out very quickly that the flood did not fix mankind's problems. It wasn't intended to. Um, because as those three sons went out and, and basically started uh, having children who had children who had children, and they created tribes on the earth, the wickedness of mankind um, continued to expand and, and, until we get to the, the, the crazy story of the Tower of De- Babel, which I would love to spend three sermons on. Um, we can't. We're just not going to do that this morning. But the Tower of Babel, basically, mankind comes together. Uh, their lifespan has been shortened, but they have a unified culture and a unified language. And, and God says, I'm going to judge this and scatter you. Um, which did two things. One, it, it, it was an act of judgment, but it was also an act of grace because what it did is it, it, it limited man's ability to monopolize power, right? And so by splintering humankind, by, by separating the languages and breaking up the gift of culture that he had given them, he limits the amount of power any one culture and any one leader can monopolize and have. So once again, it's an act of grace where the wickedness and, and violence of mankind is limited because now they're in competition with each other. They're, they're in conflict with one another instead of simply monopolizing their power to abuse and take advantage of, of people. Um, and so God scatters mankind at the, the Tower of, of Babel and splinters human culture. But God continues to guard his promise that there would be a son of the woman, a hero. And, and that line of Shem is, is, uh, is the line of Shem, right? The, of the three sons of Noah, Shem is the line of promise. And, and Shem begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and then eventually so-and-so begot a guy named Terah, and Terah begot a guy named Abram, who becomes Abraham. Abraham... Uh, the son of Terah, the son of Shem, 
the son of Noah, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, would become one of the most important humans in history. God gave him phenomenal promises, and from him, um, even today, all the major world religions, or at least three of the major world religions, trace their roots back to, to what we're going to look at here. Um, but there's a covenant of promise, right, that flows out of this from Genesis. And, and here's the thing. It's in Genesis 12 through 21. <laughs> um, the Abrahamic covenant spans uh, multiple chapters. We can't preach all of that. It would be a wonderful mini-sermon. We're not going to do that. Uh, so we're just going to focus on, on chapter 15, uh, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21 of the entire chapter. So follow along with me as I read the, the chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, the number of stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may have noticed as I read through this that um, Abraham's name is Abram. Uh, Most of us know him as Abraham. He is uh, one of the most famous historical religious figures uh, in the world. Um, But for most of his life, he was Abram. Abram, as a name, meant exalted father, which was ironic because he had no kids. 
Okay, Sarah was barren, and, 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 and in this world, at this time, this was more than just a personal sorrow, right? Infertility is always a place of personal pain and sorrow, but, but for them, it was also a place of public shame, because in this culture, your children were a sign of the blessing of the Lord, and so if you were, were infertile at this time, it was a sign that God had withheld his blessing from you, and it would actually limit your ability to accumulate wealth, to grow your estate, because families lived together and grew grew their wealth together, and so uh, he had to bring in extended family members, right, which is where Eliezer comes in, right, he's like a nephew or something, and so um, he is the exalted father, but he has no kids. Can you imagine going around town with the name exalted father when everybody knows you're childless? That's going to be a little bit of an embarrassment. It's hard enough to, to be childless, but to have a constant reminder of a name that like that. Now, here's the thing. God shows up when, when Abram is 75 years old, now this is in Genesis chapter 12, we didn't read that part, but it's the first time God appears to Abram and gives this promise that he will have a son, and Abram is 75 years old. And then God waits 25 years to fulfill that promise. He gives the promise when he's 25 years old, and he waits until Abram is, uh, is 100 years old. Uh, At 99, God shows up and reiterates the promise, right? We're talking almost 25 years, 24 years later. God reiterates the promise and gives Abram a new name, Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude. I wonder how that went over, right? He goes out in the afternoon, hey, Abram. No, it's, it's Abraham now. Oh, isn't that presumptuous? You have no children, right? I'm sure that was an embarrassing moment when he's like, oh, God changed my name. I got to go by this new name, father of a multitude, uh, while he is continuing to bear the shame of, of being childless. But here's the thing. God waited until all natural hope was dead in order to fulfill his promise. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 99. She was well past childbearing years. That's what the text tells us. Now, their lifespans were a little bit longer at this point than ours are today, but I think we all know what that meant. <laughs> she, she was past childbearing years. There was no physical, natural expectation that she could conceive and give birth to a child. And yet God enables Sarah to have a son. Miraculously, she conceives miraculously she gives birth. And they name their son Isaac. And Isaac becomes the father of Jacob. And Jacob, later in his life, is renamed Israel. And he becomes the father of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So Isaac becomes the father of Israel, and and, and that's the fulfillment of the promise. Now, just pause for a minute. Imagine waiting 25 years to receive the fulfillment of the promise. 25 years of waiting. It's what you most want. It is the deepest, most desperate desire of your soul. And God says he's going to give it to you. And then he waits. And while you're waiting, you actually watch your body wither. You you actually watch your, your wife's uh, go through the process of menopause where, where there's just, there is no longer a natural hope that this promise can be fulfilled. 
Now, here's the thing. Um, Abram didn't wait perfectly, <laughs> right? Um, he ends up, uh, as we know, he ends up sleeping with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. Uh, he decides he wants to get God's promise fulfilled in his own way. And so he goes and he sleeps with, with Hagar, and, and she conceives, and God's like, yeah, good job, but no. Um, that's not the fulfillment of the promise. Um, but I will bless that son. His name was Ishmael. I will bless that son, but he is not the line of promise. Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nations. And uh, there's conflict between Isaac and Ishmael to this day. Uh, So it's not surprising um, in Genesis 15 that, that Abram keeps questioning God. Did you notice that? Like when we read through this, Abram every time is like, how, how do I know? God's like, I'm going to give you a son. How do, I, how do I know? Right? Well, let me take you outside. You see the stars of heaven? All right, this was before light pollution. He saw a lot of stars, right? And, and he's like, that's, that's what your descendants are going to be like. And I'm going to give you a land, right? I'm going to give you a land. How do I know? Right? How do I know? It's, 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 it's natural to understand the tension of where he's at because his expectation is, 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 is not being fulfilled. All right, so God, right? God doesn't lie, right? When God says something, it is true and it will be. The God who is at this moment at the beginning of creation, who is at this moment at, at the consummation of creation, God who exists outside of time as an eternal I am, he doesn't experience the passing of time like you and I, he exists in the eternal present. God, when he gives his word, it is sure, Right? He is not taken off guard by the sequence of events in human history. God is not surprised by, by the falling of the dominoes. Right? He, he already knows. So when God speaks, it is sure. God does not lie. God is not limited. And God should not be questioned. When God says something will be, it is as sure as the very nature of God. To question the word of God is to question the character of God. To question the character of God is to question the very fabric of reality. Because God is the measure of truth and of beauty and of justice. And if God is warped, there is no standard. But God patiently listens to the questions of Abram. God humbles himself in the face of those questions. It was humility. right? Because this is God. Right? He's like, well, how do I know? Well, didn't I just say it? Right? And, and am I not God? But that's not how he responds, right? What does he do? He, he, he reiterates the promise. Abram, let me remind you what I said. Let me remind you, right? You will have a son. You will, you will father descendants as numerous as the sands of the seashore and as numerous as the stars of heaven. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. You will not just be fruitful. You will be, you will be so fruitful it will be unsurpassed. You will have a son. And I will bless you with that son. And that son will have a land. Right? The second part of the promise is, is you will have an inheritance. Right? You will have a land. Now think about, think about what this means. Abram, when God showed up to Abram in, in Genesis 12, he said, hey, Abram, I got a promise for you. I'm going to give you a son. Walk that way. So Abram left Ur, the land of his fathers, the land of his, and left, right? He caravanned and, and he became homeless. 
right? Land here is not just the promise of, of, of you know, a plot. It, it, it's the promise of, of home. Don't we all have a craving, craving for, for that? A place that belongs to us and we belong to it? A place where, where we have community and, and, and we have the roots of our life? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not just a place. It's not just a plot of land. It is, it is, it is some place for us to grow and to flourish. It is a longing for shalom in our relationship with our place and with one another. He said, I will give you a land. I will give you an inheritance. And then he said, and not only that, not only will I bless you, but I will bless the entire world through you. Your son will be a blessing to the entire world. Your son will be the most important blessing I have ever given. And then God does something amazing, completely unexpected. God doesn't just reiterate the promises, which was more than enough, because when God promises, it's sure. He does something that is shocking in its humility and its clarity. God actually goes through a formal covenant ceremony. When Abram asks him, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? God says, I'll tell you how you can be sure. Go get three heifers. Go go get a three-year-old heifer. Go get a three-year-old goat. Go get a three-year-old ram. Go get a turtle dove and a pigeon. And then he instructs them about how to sacrifice them and how to split them in half. This was the pattern of formal covenant making in the Old Testament. It's a little gruesome to us today, but but this was how um, people who were very, very serious about their covenants entered into them. What they would do is they would take sacrificial animals and they would sacrifice them to God, and then they would split them in half. And then the two of them would walk through the middle. And what they were saying basically is, this is not just an agreement between me and you, it's an agreement between me and you and God. Right? We, are, we are making a sacrifice to God and account, in, inviting God to hold us accountable, each to our part. And so they would, I commit to do this. And the other person would say, I commit to do this. And then they would walk through the animals together. And what they were essentially saying was, if I don't keep my word, may God do this to me. May I be slaughtered. May I be put to death. It was a way of very, very solemnly saying that not only am I accountable to you in this, but I'm accountable to the Most High, the authority of heaven and earth. The fact that God would humble himself to enact a formal covenant ceremony with a man is remarkable because every word he speaks is covenant. God never speaks outside of commitment to his character. He never utters falsehood. And so to go through a covenant ceremony is, is shocking. But it's even more shocking when we look at how it was done. Take a look at verse 12. It says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Drop down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a a flaming torch passed through the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. God puts Abram to sleep. 
And then he passes through the pieces alone. He passes through as a, as a, a, a smoking fire pot and, and as a flaming torch. Uh, weird things to us, weird symbols, but, but they speak of the, the, the purifying power of his holiness and the mysteriousness of, of his holiness. The sense that he is both what we crave and need, but also mysterious and, and uh, alien to us. It is a representation of his power and his character and his presence. And, and he passes through. It's very much like the, the pillar of fire and, and the pillar of smoke that led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Um, it, is a, it signifies his presence. But the thing I want us to notice is that only God passes through the pieces. Right? The message is clear. Think about it. If God is the only one who passes through the pieces, what, what, does Abraham, what does Abram need to do to receive the gift? What is, Abram, what, what is Abram committed to? Nothing. There, there is no condition. Right? Abram is called to receive the gift. And God is promising to give it. This is what we call an unconditional covenant or a covenant of promise. There are no conditions on Abram's part. God says, I will do this for you. I will bless you. And if I don't keep my word, may I be slaughtered. If I don't keep this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. All right, so this is an incredibly theologically loaded passage. Uh, there, are, there are volumes of books that are written on this chapter. Uh, and, and so I really struggled this week with, with what to unpack and what to bring into the message. Uh, because here's the thing. When we're talking about Old Testament prophecy, which you might, this, this doesn't feel like Old Testament prophecy because it's not a prophet speaking words, but, but it is a prophetic passage in which God is giving a promise about the future and then enacting, in a sense, a, a, a parable or a, a story that, that embodies what he's promising. And, and, and what ends up happening with prophecy is it's like looking at a mountain range from a distance. Um, you guys ever seen like real mountains? I'm not talking about, you know, like, like Snow Valley or whatever we got around here, right? I'm talking like like mountains, you know what I'm talking? Like you ever driven toward the Rockies and you grow, you know, you got to travel across the great flat, you know, Kansas, Nebraska, whatever. And, and you just kind of hold your breath until you get like, oh, there are the mountains. You can see them like looming in the distance. And, and uh, the thing with a mountain range is from distance, it looks like a single range, right? It looks like a single, a single, like a single peak that just runs along the length of it. And, and, and once you get into the mountain range and you get to the first peak, you realize that it's actually a series of peaks with valleys in between, right? That's what prophecy is like. When God gives a prophecy, there is often the first and most obvious fulfillment of that prophecy, right? But beyond that is, is often a secondary and, and honestly more meaningful fulfillment of that prophecy. The prophecy usually has multiple layers of meaning that can only be discovered by actually moving through time and seeing how those prophecies are fulfilled, right? So, so this passage has a direct fulfillment in the nation of Israel, right? God promised that, that, that Abraham would have a son, 
And that that son would, would, would father a nation. And that nation, he, he tells right here, will be carried off to a foreign land and held in captivity for 400 years. And, and that eventually, God would deliver them from that foreign land by leading them out with the, the pillar of fire and, and smoke. And so there's a direct application to Israel and that he would take them from there and, and give them a plot of land uh, and that it would become their, their, their place of home. Right? This, this piece of land that clings along the edge of the Mediterranean Sea is like that. That's going to be for your descendants. But, like much of prophecy, that, that near range, while it is the fulfillment of the prophecy, isn't the true and deeper fulfillment. There's another range, there's another deeper meaning. That he, God is prophesying not only about the nation of Israel, but through the nation of Israel to a greater. Fulfillment, And so a few points here to help us uh, kind of get back to our theme. Remember, our theme is this idea of the, the promise. The promise is the golden thread that runs through the tapestry of broken human history. Right? When you look at human history, it is the story of violence. It is the story of greed. It is the story of achievement and failure. Often our greatest achievements become our greatest failures. When you study human history, it is just ugly and gory and brutal with small lights of brilliant, small pockets of brilliant light just marred with all kinds of ugliness. Why? Because it is the long, ugly history of mankind trying to find life apart from God. It is the long history of man trying to reestablish shalom without the source of shalom himself. It is ugly. It is brutal. But there is a golden thread of promise that runs through this history that God essentially promises and reiterates that promise. I have not abandoned you to this mess. I will undo what has been done. I will send a hero. So the promise is the golden thread that runs through the ugly tapestry of human history that points us back to God and and forward to his promise. So where do we see the golden thread of the promise in this story? Well, obviously Isaac is a miraculous son, right? He was born in a miraculous way. Had God not miraculously given Sarah the ability to conceive and give birth, there would be no Isaac. There was going to be another son who was miraculously born. There would be another son that that was such a miracle that the Isaac story is nothing compared to it. We're talking about about one who would be born who would be both the son of man and the son of God. We're talking about a miracle that, that is unsurpassed and incomparable. The idea that God himself would take on flesh, as John tells us in John chapter 1, the word of God, the logos, the, the very thought, the very essence of God becoming flesh and walking among us. A miraculous birth. And we read that once again, God would pass through a covenant ceremony. Right? He didn't just do it in the darkness with Abram. He he did it in the darkness of the cross. On the cross, Jesus established a new covenant. He passed through a covenant ceremony to establish, because we had broken covenant with God, Jesus as our hero, as our substitute, reestablished that covenant by, by bearing the weight of our broken covenant. And he didn't die because he didn't keep his word. He died because we didn't keep ours. Because we broke covenant with God, he died under the weight of of our betrayal, under the weight of our cosmic treason. 
He didn't die because he didn't keep his word. He died to keep his word in order to fulfill his promise. His promise to redeem and restore. He died a traitor's death that we might be delivered from the weight of our cosmic treason. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become righteousness of God in Him. He became the true and better seed of Abraham, the true and better Isaac that would be a blessing to the entire world. Israel was a blessing to the world, right? That was that first phase of fulfillment, right? Through Israel, we get the Old Testament. Through Israel, we get, we get this revelation handed to us from God. Through, through Israel, we get this rich covenant history. God blessed the world through Israel, but, but he blessed the world in a much more powerful and profound sense through Jesus. Israel was the near mountain. The greater and truer blessing came through the truer and better Isaac, Jesus. He became the seed of Abraham that was the blessing to the entire world. And as Isaac begot Jacob, who became Israel, Jesus begot an entire new humanity. Not a humanity bound by race. Not a humanity bound by a geographical boundary, but a humanity that, that is bound by a new language. Right? God undid what he did at Babel. In the scattering of the cultures and the breaking up of languages, he has given us a new language of grace. A new language of the gospel. And that's what unites the great diversity of the, of the people of faith. Whatever their background, whatever their racial background, socioeconomic background, their, their time in history. We are, those who are of faith are of one people. This new humanity that are being recreated in the image of God through the resurrection of Jesus. Made up of every tribe, every tongue. We are the spiritual children of Abraham. Believer, you and I are the spiritual children of Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith. And if you have faith, you you are a, a child of Abraham. Take a look at these verses. This is Galatians 3.29. It says, if you are Christ's, if you have believed in Christ, if you have trusted uh, uh, God's message to you in Jesus, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are. I don't, I don't care what your genetic lineage is. If you are, are of faith, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That means you and I, believer, are the, 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 the rightful heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. The promise given to Abraham is the promise given to us. Take a look at Romans 4.11 right below that. Abraham is the father of all who believe. If you are a believer in Christ, Abraham is your father. Right? There is a new humanity being formed through the work of Christ that is not bound by, by ethnic background. It, is, it, it transcends ethnic background to focus on a new unity that comes through the true and better son of Abraham, Jesus. So Abraham is our father. right? And as such, he models for us both what we are promised... And how we take hold of it. So in the passage, take a look at, at 
Genesis 15, verse 6. So Genesis 15, verse 6, right? This is, this is um, right after God has reiterated uh, his promise that he will have a son, that it, that it won't be um, Eleazar. Um, uh, and, then, uh, he, and then he says to him, so shall your offspring be, comparing it to the stars of heaven, verse 6. And he believed the Lord, that is Abraham, and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. When Paul was arguing with the Jews of the first century about the importance of Abraham, this was often the critical sticking point because they believed Abraham was made righteous through a lifelong pattern of righteous behavior. That Abraham made good choices. Abraham did good things. Abraham did the faithful things. And because he did faithful things, God declared his faith uh, righteous. And Paul is like, man, you are completely misreading this. He's like, it's right here, you guys. It's right here in your own Hebrew text, in your own Hebrew scriptures, right here in Genesis 15, 6. Even though they didn't have verses back then, he, he put, that's it right there, Genesis 15, 6. Because what this says very, very clearly is that he believed God. And because he believed God, he was declared righteous. That God took that faith and counted it to him as righteousness. So, you guys, what is faith? Faith is not something you do for God. You can't make yourself have more faith. Faith isn't a work, right? That's where some of these crazy faith teachers are so off base because they'll be like, if you just have enough faith, you can get God to do anything. So just have more faith. As if you could talk yourself into having more faith. That's not the way it works. You can't make, faith is not a work you do. Faith is a response you have. When God reveals himself to us, faith is a response of trust to that revelation. If you want to have more faith, fill your vision more with the promise of God. Because the promise provokes the faith. You don't produce it. God graciously gives it to you in response to the promise he gives you. God gives you the promise and then he gives you the faith to receive it. It is a response, not a work. So when it says that, that Abram was declared right by God as a result of his faith, it wasn't that, that Abram somehow had this great faith. And so there God was like, oh, okay, I'll count that. It was God, he responded. So one thing I find really, really comforting, this is chapter 15, right? In chapter 16 is when Abram goes and sleeps with Hagar. And you're like, why are you so excited about that? Because think about what that means. How strong is Abram's faith? Right? God gives him a promise, and Abram's like, huh. And God's like, I see that faith. I count that to you as righteousness. And then he turns around and tries to fulfill God's promise in his own way. What that tells me is that it's not the strength of my faith that makes me secure. It's the strength of the one I've put my faith in. It's not how strong my faith is. It's whether I have it or not. If I have faith, God will strengthen that faith and grow that faith and increase that faith because God gave it to me and he treasures it and he will guard it and protect it and grow it. But I'm not more secure because I have more faith. It is not my faith that makes me secure. It is the promise of God. 
God initiates in love. God initiates in sovereignty. God initiates in power on my behalf. And I am called to respond and trust. I am not more secure the more I trust. I am secure the moment I have faith, as weak as that faith might be. Because a weak faith in a mighty hero is is as secure as we'll ever need. God protects and gives that faith. So Abram responds in faith. God initiates. Abram responds. And Abraham is is our model. He is made right by by imputed faith. Imputation is the kind of the big theological word for describing this. Imputation simply means that it is credited to us. It is given to us. Right? Our sin is imputed to Christ on the cross. and, And when we respond in faith, when we trust that... God's righteousness is imputed or credited to us, right? We are covered with God's very own righteousness. As a result, Abram, when he obeys, when he does good works, isn't doing it to to prove his faith or strengthen his faith or secure the blessing. He's doing it because he has faith. Because true faith works. True faith expresses itself. In acts of increasing obedience and submission and love, faith changes us because faith is the essence of trust. And trust always grows us in relationship with the one that we do trust. So God moves toward Abram Abram in in love and in commitment. And and Abram responds to that in trust and faith. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And that's exactly how it works for us. Abram was saved in the exact same way we are. Abram was delivered from, from the penalty of treason in the same exact way we are. Right? There, there weren't multiple ways. This is, there's been one way to approach God from the beginning. And Abram is the father of faith. He is our example. And I would encourage you this week, if, if you're looking for a little light reading, to go over to Romans chapter 4 and uh, spend some time reading it. I, I sat in Romans 4 this week, and honestly, I would have loved to have just preached Romans 4, uh, but it would have taken me, I don't know, three months, um, and, and I decided not to do a mini-series on it. But I'm going to encourage you, man. Romans 4, Paul takes that whole chapter and, and looks at, at Genesis 15 and talks about this very thing and unpacks it in great detail. So I would really encourage you, while this stuff is fresh in your mind, man, go over to Romans 4 and, and read that stuff and, and, and wrestle with it and let it encourage your faith, okay? So, so we take hold of the promise through faith in the same way Abram did. So, so what is the promise and how does it apply to us? What is this promise? If we're children of Abraham, what, what does the promise mean to us? Right? Well, well Abram was promised um, that, that, that he'd be given a land. Now, there's a lot of debate today exactly about what that land meant and, and, and who should have it and what the boundaries should be. And I'm just going to be honest. I think much of it just misses the point. You know why? Because Romans 4.13 tells us, that Abram was actually promised that he would be heir of the world. Not just a piece of real estate by the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean Sea fulfillment for the nation of Israel was the first mountain. That was the first fulfillment of the promise. But looking through that promise, there was a greater fulfillment. It wasn't wasn't a piece of real estate by the Mediterranean Sea. That's That's not the fulfillment of the promise. The fulfillment of the promise is the entire world. That we would be, Abram, he says, Abram would, would be the heir of the world as a result of the promise. 
You know what that means? It means that, that, that in, in, in promising his children a piece of real estate, land, he was, he was foreshadowing the greater promise. What it means, you guys, listen, God is promising to take us home. God isn't just promising to give a piece of land to a specific people. In fact, that, that's, the, that's the, the first phase of that happened. And that was the first phase of the promise. The greater promise is that God is going to take us home. That desire you have for a place of flourishing, a place where where relationships are alive, a place where you can put down roots and you are owned by that place as much as you own it, that that it is is a place of, of the experience of shalom. That's not an empty desire. That is the very promise given to Abraham that is passed down to Christ, that is handed to us. God will take us home. He will bring us back into a land flourishing with shalom. Jesus didn't rise from the dead to take you off earth and put you in heaven somewhere where I don't even know what that is. When you read scripture, what you find is that Jesus rose from the dead to take heaven and bring it back to earth. We were created to be human. We were created to live in a thriving world of shalom and the promise of the resurrection is that there is a new humanity, a new people of God that will inhabit the place of God, the very globe that has been broken by our sin. What is your inheritance? Shalom. And what better inheritance could there be? The experience of the flourishing of life. All right, one final point. Abram was given his promise when he was 75 years old and he had to wait 25 years to receive the fulfillment of that promise. Think about his experience in that 25 years. We've been talking about how I have a twofold aim over the course of this series. I want us looking back to the first advent with joy, and I want us looking forward to the next advent with longing. Doesn't that describe Abraham during that 25 years? See, Abraham modeled for us what it means to live between the advents. To live with the joy of a promise given and with the painful longing for the fulfillment of the promise. We look back with overwhelming gratitude and we look forward with a hope that is so strong it's actually painful. Lord, please come. Put an end to the wickedness and the vileness, the abuse of power. Bring the flourishing and the balance of life. Abraham modeled for us what faith looks like as we wait for God to fulfill his promise. Everybody in this room is experiencing the longing of that ache in one way or another. Everybody in this room is either is, 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 is yearning for a promise to be fulfilled or a brokenness to be removed. A sorrow to be comforted or, or a joy to be given. Everyone in this room is experiencing the greater longing that we know cannot be fed in this world. Abraham modeled for us what faith looks like in that season. And as broken as Abram was, 
he stumbled forward in faith, looking back to the promise to renew his hope for the future. Listen, God will do it in his time. God is never not doing a million things. In our passage, I love this little part where he's like, hey, by the way, your descendants, they're going to be carried off into captivity for like 400 years. Don't worry, I'm not going to forget about them. But I've got to wait until the iniquity of the Amorites gets fulfilled. What's that all about? I have no idea. What the iniquity of the Amorites? What he's basically saying is, look, I got, I'm doing other things here, okay? Like, I'm never not doing a million things. And so while you're sitting over here waiting, I didn't forget about you. I'm doing a million other things, and your waiting is part of my plan. And your waiting increases and grows your faith. When Abram received the gift of Isaac, there was no question about the miraculous delivery of that gift. When Abram received Isaac, there was no measure to his gratitude and no measure to his faith. And we see that later when he takes Isaac up on the mountain and actually... When God says, I want you to sacrifice your son, he takes him up on the hill and he's going to kill him and God prevents him from doing it. He's willing to kill the son of promise. Why? Because his faith in God is greater than the death of his son. God will grow your faith. When we start growing sick with longing, we need to remind ourselves of the promise and renew our hope in its fulfillment. Listen, blessing has come. And blessing is coming. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And uh, we're going to take a little bit of time for reflection. And then we're going to share communion. That will be introduced in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, we come to you knowing that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We come to you knowing that you are the Father who gives good promises. And we come to you acknowledging that our faith is weak. But Lord, we know you are not put off by the weakness of our faith. You've given us what little faith we have and you will grow. It is something we've never experienced before. I pray, Spirit, this morning that you might fill our vision with the beauty of a God who, man, would pass through death. That he might become a living sacrifice. That he might become the open door back to life for us. Give us joy as we look back and Awaken our hearts to the blessing that is to come. We might never become so enamored with the sparkling things around us in this world that our hope would be misplaced in something so temporal and so shallow. Awaken us to the spirit of the Advent season. We pray this in Jesus' name. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.